LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Steve Taylor who joins us to discuss his book Spiritual Science, Why Science Needs Spirituality to Make Sense of the World. Is it possible that the most profound mysteries of existence can be solved not through science or spirituality alone but through an approach that combines them both? In this groundbreaking book, Steve Taylor offers a new vision of the world that is compatible with both modern science and ancient spiritual teachings. Spiritual science reveals Taylor's pan-spiritist view of reality, one that transcends both conventional science and religion and answers many of the riddles that neither can fully explain. The standard model of science has had limited success in explaining many phenomena, including consciousness, the connection between mind and body, altruism, and anomalies such as near-death experiences, psychic phenomena, and spiritual awakenings, to name just a few. But from a pan-spiritist perspective, which sees spirit or consciousness as a fundamental essence of reality, it is possible to make sense of all these things. Drawing on the insights of philosophers, physicists, and mystics, as well as spiritual traditions and indigenous cultures, Taylor makes a compelling case for a spiritual vision of reality a vision of a sacred and interconnected world and of a meaningful and purposeful human life. The purely materialist model of reality is taking us to the brink of disaster. It is time to take a wider view before it's too late. Hello and welcome Steve and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. You're welcome, it's great to be here again. Steve, today we're going to be talking about your new book. It's entitled Spiritual Science. Why Science Needs Spirituality to Make Sense of the World. Uh, before we get into that, just tell, for, uh, for listeners who don't know, just tell folks a little bit about your background and your work in general. Well, I'm, uh, I have a job as a, my role is a, as a transpersonal psychologist. I'm a lecturer and researcher at Leeds Beckett University. And I'm the author of a number of books on psychology and spirituality, including The Fall and Waking from Sleep and The Leap and uh, many other books. So I'm, I'm, um, I see myself as the uh, someone who's investigating the farther reaches of human nature. Having read the new book, which, by the way, it really is excellent. I think it's your best work to date. Um, it feels like well, thank you. it feels like not perhaps a summation of what you've done so far, but it feels like something you've been building up to. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I see it in the same way. I see it as the kind of um, the summation of ideas that I've been developing and research I've been doing. Probably uh, for most of my adult life, probably for the last 20 years or so. Um, and um, it is partly based on, on, on a number of articles I've written as well. So it's kind of a, a bringing together of lots of different strands of my of my thinking 
and the bringing together of a lot of different theories I've been developing. Now, I always had the idea, um, and I've read and written and uh, recorded a lot of interviews dealing with science and spirituality, both uh, in the same arena over the years. I've done a lot of work on that. And I always had a sense, even when I was quite young and first reading about these topics, that it seemed to me that over the vastness of time of human history, that there seemed to be sort of a, a divergence between science and spirituality, depending on the age and a tremendous dichotomy would be created between them, you know, materialism and religion. But there, there was sometimes a convergence and these things would no longer be strangers, as it were. So it seems, and this seems to be sort of a rhythm that happens over a very long period of time. And it's this is really just a, th- a theory of mine. I'm not actually stating it as fact, but it, it, mm. it does feel with a lot of the things that we're learning today that as much as we're living in a very secular age, and there has been an increasing rejection of traditional religion, that what we're learning uh, in science, basically that these two strands appear to be converging again in some way. And of course, there's a tremendous resistance to that. And it's really what your book's dealing with, I think. That's true. I think what happened was that in the 19th century, particularly towards the end of the 19th century, materialism developed as a, as a belief system. And it was based on some of the, the findings of science. It was partly based on Darwin's theory of evolution. And there was a realization amongst intellectuals, people like uh, T.H. Huxley, for example, um, they, they came to the realization that science or some scientific findings could be the foundation of a new way of explaining the world, a new belief system, which could replace religion as a way of explaining the world. And so that led to the development of materialism as a belief system. And it, it it's so tied together with science that a lot of people don't realize they're, they're actually different. You know, when you talk about science, a lot of people um, assume that you're talking about materialism or scientism. You know, science is a belief system. And it is based on a number of beliefs about um, the world and about human behavior. Uh, for example, it's based on the assumption that consciousness is produced by the brain. It's based on the assumption that human beings are basically automata um, with no free will, and that consciousness is a kind of illusion. It's based on the idea that um, the world can be explained in terms of biology and physics and so on. And a lot of people accept these things as facts, whereas they are just assumptions. They're just really uh, tenets of the belief system of materialism. But I, but I think you're right um, in saying that at the moment there is a kind of convergence. I think there is a movement beyond materialism, which is taking place at the moment, probably over the last 10 or 15 years, especially the more and more people are beginning to question the, the the assumptions of materialism. For example, the assumption that consciousness is produced by the brain, or that human beings are basically automated, consisting of genes and molecules and so forth. And uh, th- this is partly coming from within science itself. You know, more and more scientists are beginning to turn away from simple materialism. You know, there's a really interesting movement in biology at the moment, in, in it's called the, the third way in evolution, where a number of prominent biologists are beginning to question, well, not beginning, they've actually, you know, they, they have actually questioned and discarded the main assumptions of neo-Darwinism. They've, they've realized that neo-Darwinism is too simplistic as a way of explaining evolution. And there are many areas of science where there, there seems to be a movement beyond materialism and an acceptance of more, of, of alternative, well, post-materialist, you could say, ways of explaining the world. Uh, the materialist um, view of the world, as you pointed out in the book, um, answered many needs. 
and it seemed to, uh, how can I put it, tie up a lot of loose ends. And human beings have a tremendous, tremendous psychological need for certainty. They want to know what's going on. And with the increasing understanding of the world that science did allow, it was very tempting to complete a few sentences and put a few full stops on things that we did not really have a full understanding of. And I think resistance to some of the new ideas that emerging do indeed still stem for the psychological need for certainty. People don't like the idea, mm. do, do not like the idea that we've got no idea what's going on. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it was the same, you know, the same syndrome occurred in the 16th and 17th centuries when science began and more people began to realize that biblical explanations of of the world were too simplistic and could not account for reality. So people like Galileo and Copernicus came up with an alternative way of understanding the world. And they were resisted by the church authorities. You know, there's a story about, um, you know, people refusing to, to look through the telescope through Galileo's telescope because they were afraid of what they might see. They were afraid of, of their worldview being overturned by the new findings of science. And paradoxically or ironically, that's happening in the present day or has been happening for the last few decades uh, uh, with scientists who refuse to accept the, ex- the evidence for so-called paranormal phenomena. You know, there's so much evidence for phenomena like telepathy and precognition. You know, there's very empirical, very rigorous, very watertight empirical evidence for these phenomena. But, um, you know, a lot of scientists refuse to accept it because it contravenes their worldview. And, you know, you could say the same about near-death experiences. There's a lot of evidence that near-death experiences are a real phenomenon which can't be explained in terms of neurological activity. That they do seem to suggest that consciousness exists beyond the brain in some way or can continue when the brain ceases to function. So, yeah, it's kind of understandable that, you know, when you do have a a belief system which explains the world, it gives you a sense of orientation, it gives you a narrative to explain where you are, it even gives you a sense of identity, and it even gives you a sense of control. You know, you feel that you can control the world because you can understand it and complain it. The, uh, sorry, explain it. And there's, um, there's a nice um, term which I sometimes use, which is overstand. When we understand the world, in a sense, we overstand it because we have a sense of control and power over it. So it's kind of understandable that people are reluctant to give that up. They're reluctant to consider beliefs which contravene their worldview and which could potentially take away this sense of control and the sense of orientation and identity. What you mentioned there about identity is really, really important because, of course, people come to identify with all sorts of uh, spurious and erroneous things, usually things outside of themselves, of course, and that that is almost more powerful than the need for certainty in a way. Because you'll see people ident- identifying themselves as one particular thing or another, even though it may have been utterly, <laughs> utterly disproved, and that doesn't seem to make any difference. It's like you know, for example, people who believe that uh, uh, fossils were put on Earth, you know, for mm. example, to, to challenge the strength of Christian belief, that sort of thing, sort of patent nonsense. But they'll still hold on to it because if they let it go, that who would they be? Exactly. Yeah. And there's a really interesting. Um you know, there's a few interesting cases from the studies of psi phenomena where skeptics have been converted with evidence. Um, but they've, you know, they, they've, um, it, it's created, there's this term from psychology, cognitive dissonance. When you're presented with evidence which conflicts your, with your beliefs, it creates dissonance, cognitive dissonance. So there's an impulse to explain it away. And, you know, there are all kinds of convoluted and torturous attempts to explain away evidence that you don't agree with. You mentioned the examples of, of fossils, 
you know, Christians believing, fundamental Christians believing that fossils were placed there by the devil to tempt us into disbelief and so on. And, um, you know, the, the, you know, there are, there are many cases of sci experiments where skeptical researchers have found positive results, but they've managed to explain them away in some, you know, by changing the methodology, changing the criteria of experiments. And there was an interesting passage, um, written by Susan Blackmore, who I, I respect as a, you know, researcher into consciousness and we use her textbooks at university because they're very clearly written and, you know, I have a great deal of respect for her. And in one of her books, she writes about when she was invited to observe an experiment um, where children were being tested for telepathy. And she was kind of like a skeptical observer who was brought in to, to oversee the experiment. And she found to a surprise that the children were getting positive results. And she writes how, the, how, this, how this really shocked her. And how she could feel this strong sense of unease inside her because she knew that it conflicted with her beliefs. And she was honest enough to, you know, to realize that she, she, she experienced this. And she just explains how it created this weird sense of disorientation inside her. This weird sense that she may be wrong and all of, all of assumptions were being, all of her assumptions were being questioned. But even that did not, you know, did not, um, stimulate her to change her beliefs. She was just aware of the cognitive dissonance, but refused to allow it to change her beliefs. Well, as you've pointed out already, there are a lot of assumptions made by materialism about things that are not actually proven. They may be true, but they're not yet proven, may never be. That is not considered to be what it actually is, which is a worldview or a perspective. For a lot of people, it's, it's taken as a fundamental reality. You know, it's that syndrome of, oh, well, everybody knows this. Unpicking a lot of those is obviously going to be time-consuming and, and a, a bit painful, as we're seeing. But, you know, we're, we're getting there. Hmm, I think so. Yeah, and I think um, there is a slow shift underway. My, my feeling um, as an academic, you know, working within academia, is that there is more openness towards, you know, so-called anomalous phenomena. And I think people are beginning to realise that, um, for example, that consciousness cannot be explained simply in terms of neurological activity. There's the, you know, you, you probably, you've probably heard of this concept of the hard problem, which is the idea that, um, you know, consciousness and the brain are two fundamentally or ontologically different things. And there's no way of explaining how the, the, you know, the soggy lump of matter, which is our brains, could give rise to the richness and variety of conscious experience. It's like saying that water can turn into wine. And there are all, all, all kinds of other problems. There's kind of like dissociation or inconsistency between neurolo neurological activity and conscious experience. Um, you know, and researchers are finding it very difficult to identify which parts of the brain are related to which types of conscious experience. And there are, you know, there are situations where, um, neurological activity is very low uh, for example in a coma or in deep sleep or uh, when a person becomes unconscious after an epileptic seizure in those experiences consciousness disappears or is very there is very low level of neurological activity um, seemingly but there's a kind of mismatch you know a person in a coma for example could have very very intense conscious experience at the, t at the same time uh, 
is when their neural activity is almost absent. Or in a near-death experience, neurological activity may be absent altogether, but conscious experience continues. And it's almost as if, you know, the, in some ways, the, the, the less neuro- neurological activity there is, the more intense consciousness becomes. So there's this weird kind of mismatch between neurological activity and, and consciousness. So because of problems like that, I think more and more people are turning to alternative perspectives like panpsychism or, or my philosophy, which I call panspiritism, to other kind of more esoteric or post-materialists, post-materialist perspectives, perspectives as a way of explaining consciousness and as a way of explaining the world in general. And of course, I always feel the need to, when discussing these topics in general, to say we're not, we're not deriding science here, but it's when, oh, no, when no, it no. tips over into scientism, uh, that there, there is a bit of a problem. And I've certainly spoken to people who consider themselves to be ra- rationalists, skeptics, which I must admit that term always makes me bristle because it's almost like, you know, a hardened skeptic is there to dismiss kind of like everything. You know, which is kind of like, well, you know, people like to say, you know, I take a skeptical view of the world. Well, that's fine. But, you know, that doesn't mean that everything out there, everything that you don't agree with is a falsehood. But science is one way of gaining knowledge. Uh, and that, that's it. And as you said, it's been tremendously useful uh, to us and given us a lot. But what it has resulted in is in this very sort of cold clinical way of looking at the world. You mentioned human beings being considered automata. And of course, our systems that we have, economic systems, political systems, have been evolved uh, to mirror our view of evolution, which is competitive, confrontational. Yeah. So these systems are based on materialism, we're, and we've been seeing for quite a while now, but certainly right in the middle of it now, the, the dire consequences of this slavish adherence to materialist principles. Well, that's very true, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I love science. Um, I've always loved science. I love uh, astronomy and physics, especially quantum physics, and I love biology. I think science is a way of uncovering the wonder of, of reality, the wonder of the world. Um, but it's something different, you know, like you say, when it becomes scientism, when there's a, a set of tenets or assumptions which you're expected to, to hold if you're a scientific person. It becomes very irrational, it becomes very fundamentalist and very similar to, to a religion. Uh, yeah, and... and um, you know, there's still an assumption that if you are an academic working at a university like me, you still, you know, people are always surprised when I say that I, I'm open to the possibility of life after death or I believe in telepathy. They're, they're usually slightly surprised because they assume that if you're an intellectual and academic, you, you do subscribe to materialism. But, um, but as you say, yeah, that the consequences of, you know, the, the materialist belief system, which has held sway for, for over a hundred years now, for you know, since the end of the nineteenth century in Europe and in America to a certain extent as well, in other countries as well, obviously, yeah, it has led to this sort of. On the one hand, it's led to a sense of meaninglessness, a sense of nihilism, because you know, if we are just machines, you know, if there is no life after death, we're just we're just here to to survive and reproduce. Then you know, there's no point to anything really. You know, we're just. Um, you know, what should we do? We'll just sort of pass the time, watch as much TV as possible, have a good time, try to earn as much money as we can, try to get as much as we can from the world. You know, and I think that there is that kind of, there is a background of nihilism in our whole culture because of the materialist belief system. And it, it has also informed our attitude to nature so that we, we see nature as a supply of resources. We see natural phenomena 
um, you know, as being there for us to exploit. And, you know, we, we, we have lost the ability to empathize and to connect with natural phenomena and to respect them. So obviously that has had terrible consequences in terms of um, our treatment of the environment. Yes, tremendous sense of disconnection with, with ourselves, actually, and with each other, and you say with the environment around us. And talking about cognitive dissonance, of course, we've been hammering the environment, burning through resources like there's no tomorrow. Mm. And but and when lots of evidence has been piling up telling us, you know, like positive feedback loops, they're saying you can't keep doing this, but we do it anyway because... We can't, mm. you know, we, we, there's tremendous resistance to accepting that this may not be the way to, ex, you know, exist in, on the planet in, in some sort of sense of balance. As far as scientism goes, I've said, you know, if we choose to oppose the religious, we shouldn't become too religious in our opposition. And you do see, mm. you do see a great deal of that. And that's a huge problem. But we've always been able to have the positives of science and spirituality without adopting everything wholesale, you know. As you say, there's, I mean, there's lots of, uh, scientists in America who are, consider themselves Christian. You know, they go to church on Sunday. They have a spiritual dimension to their lives, but they, sp- mm. they spend the week staring down a microscope or whatever. And, uh, so, we, you know, we don't have, doesn't have to be either or black and white. And I think that's one of the problems that really has led us up to this point. It's like, if you accept, yeah, if you're going to accept some of the tenets of materialism, the ones that seem to be, you know, logical, make sense, proven, and that you and I could agree on, it doesn't mean you have to take the whole kit and caboodle. No, no, that's true. And I mean, I think one of the basic problems with it, uh, with materialism, is that it, it does not actually explain the world very well. Now, that's the main point of my book, that materialism, you know, it provides a coherent narrative to make sense of the world. And, you know, that's, that, that's his main appeal thing. It's, it's this very simplistic narrative that things are made of atoms. Atoms come together to create molecules. Molecules come together to create living beings. Living beings evolve and eventually turn into human beings. But f- fundamentally, matter is the only thing which has reality. And the mind is just the, the product of um, material particles in the brain interacting. And it's, it, it provides a very simplistic narrative to make sense of the world. But apart from that kind of narrative component, component as a way of explaining individual phenomena like consciousness or the effect of the mind on the body, um, even evolution, and also as a way of explaining... An, Anomalous phenomena like near-death experiences, spiritual experiences, psychic phenomena. It doesn't actually work. I mean, none of the ex- explanations that materialism provides are convincing, and there's so much evidence against them. So it's a very, you know, it's a very poor way of explaining the world. And, you know, the main point of my book is that if you want to explain the world properly, if you want to explain human behavior, a human experience properly, then you have to move beyond materialism towards a, towards a spiritual pr- perspective. So in terms of explanation, spirituality is essential you know you can't explain the world without it now you mentioned your system that you you call pan spirituality and you also mentioned pan psychism there's also pan deism these are things people can look up for not familiar with what well, the essential idea as we've been establishing here is that it is consciousness is kind of the ground of being that um underlies reality perhaps even originates uh, reality creates it. We don't know yet, but we're just, we're following our senses here. Just, and that, I use that term reminds us then that we do have 
uh, our five senses are limited. We know this quite simply when we know that dogs and cats can see and hear a little bit more than we can for the most part, and that cameras can ca- capture things that we can't actually see. So the uh, quite where we would get the idea that we have um, a level of consciousness that's going to be able to figure everything out is I'm not quite sure where mm. that co- not quite sure where that comes from. You know, it's not very um, we sort of. It's very opposite of humble. Let's face it. You know, we could do with a bit of um, we could do with a bit more humility, really. But you know, again, yeah. as you say, an age came. We remember back in the Victorian age when some scientists were. I can't remember who came out with the famous statement. Really, that, you know, more or less. I'm paraphrasing now. More or less, all the the facts of existence are. We pretty much got them all. We just have to, you know, full stop, yeah. dot a few i's and cross a few t's, and we're nearly there. Yeah, and that was just before the discovery of relativity and uh, quantum physics. I think. So uh, yeah, I mean that's. Um yeah, there is a, there's a certain arrogance in human beings. But again, it's the psychological need, you know, the need for explanation, the need for control. And it's part of the religious impulse too, you know, the religious, the religious, religious impulse to have a narrative which makes sense of the world, <clears throat> which makes sense of your position in the world and gives you a purpose in life. It's a very strong human need. And obviously, if you believe that you do have the answers that you are able to explain the world, then in a sense it's finished. You know, you know, you believe that you have the truth. You you know the nature of reality. And yeah, there, there's an underlying assumption there that that human consciousness is objective and absolute, that it does give us a true picture of reality. But but as you say, that's that's obviously nonsense. You know, we're we're just part of the evolutionary continuum. And uh evolution will continue after us for, for millions of years. And just in the same way that our consciousness is more intense than, say, you know, a, an insect's or a, a reptile's, you know, we have a, a more intricate picture of the world. We are able to, uh, we have a greater conceptual understanding of reality than other animals. We probably have a, you know, a more intricate understanding and awareness of the world than them. But, you know, in, Evolution is going to continue in some form, and millions of years hence, there will be other animals who have a much more intense and expansive awareness than we do, and they'll be able to understand the world in a much more um, expansive way than we do. So it, it's nonsense to believe that we we are capable of a, a kind of absolute understanding of reality. There's bound to be much more than we are presently aware of. Well, of course, tremendous power comes with this declaration or this seeming knowledge that you can understand what's going on. You can explain the world. And that's where priest class kind of arose, I suppose, in the past. It's just, I know what the truth is. You know, if they can learn to predict a, a lunar eclipse, for example, then it actually happens. It's like, oh, you know, almighty one. And who, yeah. who are the priest class today in many ways? You know, we talked about the dwindling of traditional religions, particularly in, in the West and in countries modeled along those lines. And of course, there is an increase in religious fundamentalism as well. That's just being pulled in another direction. But that's a subject for another day. But who today are the people that, that, that sort of get worship? It's a lot of the, you go into, there's a category now in bookshops that there wasn't when I was a kid, and that's popular science. All mm. these people, the sort of like high priests of materialism, they command, like Richard Dawkins is a classic example. It's about, they command huge audiences. You know, their books, mm. books are bestsellers. And people will unquestionably consume this material 
and take it as we said, well, yeah. take it as what we said is earlier, which was like not actually a belief system or a, a view of the world, but actually, you know, this is something that, you know, we're, we're, even before Richard Dawkins was born and after he dies, this is actually how it is, you know, this much we can start with. Yeah. But, but actually the idea that, that, that there is a force, how can I put it, you know, almost like in Star Wars, there is a force underlying reality behind it, below it, beneath it, whatever, however you want to put it. That's been preserved by religions and mystical traditions over time. And I, as I said earlier, mm, about this mm. convergence, I mean, science is hinting at that now in, in, in quantum physics. And I know there's been, oh, yeah. there's been much misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the findings of quantum physics, uh, exaggerating, misrepresenting, some of it deliberate. But the insights that we can take, as confusing as it can be, the insights that we are gleaning from it are seen to be have not been integrated at all. Um, you know, it takes no, like a hundred no. years now. And even when I was learning physics in the 1980s, we never, never was mentioned. We heard Einstein's name and we talked about relativity and what have you, mm, but quantum mm. physics never in the 1980s, not even mentioned. Yeah. 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 It's very strange. It's very strange, but you're right. Yeah. There is, um, you know, people like Richard Dawkins are the, the high priests. Interestingly, a few months ago, I was invited to speak uh, at a festival, uh, called the Blue Dot Festival near Manchester, which is a science uh, and music festival. And it was really interesting. Uh, and Richard Dawkins was actually there. He was taking a part in a debate, in a discussion with Jim Al-Khalili, another well-known sort of popular scientist. And, yeah, it was interesting because, the, you know, not just Richard Dawkins, but throughout every debate, um, you know, throughout every audience, there was this kind of assumption that, you know, we... We know the nature of reality. We have the truth. And there was a kind of an, an kind of underlying opposition to anything esoteric, you know, like somebody mentioned telepathy and everyone went boo or hiss. There's this kind of like uh, um, fundamentalist opposition to uh, to anything spiritual or esoteric. And there was a kind of almost like a self-satisfied feeling that, you know, we are we possess the truth. And there was a sense of opposition. I think fundamentalism always comes with a sense of opposition to other groups. And there was definitely that sense of fundamentalism throughout this festival. And, and it was a shame, really, because, you know, the, the basic material of science, as I say, I, I love it. It's really fascinating. And there were, there were so many, you know, there were many fascinating um, events and displays at this festival. But again, what, what really put me off was this kind of underlying arrogant assumption um, of, you know, of possessing truth. And, but I mean, interestingly as well, although... You know, some of that Richard Dawkins does have a very high status as this kind of high priest within science itself. You know, amongst the the community of academic um, scientists, biologists, and evolutionary theorists, there's actually you know a lot of doubt. You know, a lot of opposition to his beliefs. You know, there's a very strong feeling amongst many biologists that neo Darwinism is just too simplistic and cannot account for uh, the creativity of evolution. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a kind of, um, the, the high status of many popular scientists is quite superficial and, you know, within the serious science, scientific community, as opposed to the, the popular science community, there's a lot of skepticism about, you know, the simplistic, uh, assumptions of materialism. The same with, you know, the simplistic assumption that consciousness is produced by the brain. You know, a lot of people in the media, um, assume that as almost as if it's a reality, but within the philosophical community, even within the the scientific community, there's a lot of skepticism about it, and more and more uh, theorists, 
and scientists are are turning to alternative perspectives like like panpsychism especially is becoming more and more popular um and ho- and hopefully you know what i call panspiritism which is you know the, the particular post-materialist philosophy i'm trying to uh, promote hopefully that will you know gain some some traction as well well, just throw in a little anecdote before I move on. I was at a, a group a meeting recently. It was at a, a lecture was being given, and it was a, the group were definitely materialists. In fact, it was they were humanists, and I'm not deriding that point of view at all because I can totally see the the logic in adopting that worldview, and I can see that the need that that fulfills, uh, trying to get away from irrationalism and uh, you know the the, mm. the the downside of religious fundamentalism. I can totally see how that would make sense. Yeah. I probably would have considered myself a humanist at one point, but then I got to a stage where it just wasn't enough. It just didn't, as you said, didn't explain things. But anyway, we were talking about Christmas coming up. Uh, you know, oh yeah, what's everyone doing for Christmas? And it was kind of like somebody who was new to the group was saying, do humanists do Christmas? You know, what do we do? Do we just have like, you know, turkey and stuffing and all the rest of it like other people do, even though we're not religious? And the, <laughs> the leader of the group said, well, we know obviously we're not doing the, the Christian aspects of Christmas. It's just a sort of a food and drink festival now on TV. Uh, he said, but the, he said, the clo- we don't worship anyone. If we do, the closest we've got is Darwin. And because he said, <laughs> he, t- he talked about when Darwin's birthday was coming up. And he said that in all seriousness. It was quite telling, really. Wow. Yeah. And it's quite ironic as well because Darwin was not a neo Darwinist. I mean, no. He didn't subscribe to the assumptions of neo Darwinism. He said, particularly towards the end of his life, he he came to regret that he'd placed so much emphasis on natural selection, and he believed that it couldn't account for the the variety and creativity of evolution. He still thought it was the main factor, but he he was sure that there were other factors as well. And and Darwin was actually he put a lot of emphasis on cooperation, uh, which is you know in the modern version of Darwinism that's completely obscured. You know everything is about competition and survival, but Darwin was very aware of the importance of cooperation. So even Darwin himself, you know, maybe like, um, I guess this happens in all religions, you know, the Darwin which people worship is not the, the real Darwin, you know, the, the picture of Darwin that people have created, um, actually, you know, misses out a lot of essential aspects of his, of his, uh, his work. Well, you were talking earlier about, uh, if we take consciousness as an underlying force, for want of a better word, that perspective makes sense of so many things that seem to be, unexplainable now and rather than throwing out near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences telepathy precognition all that paranormal and supernatural stuff rather than just throwing it out pretending it's not happening that it actually begins to uh, a framework begins to form where these things not only become possible but um you actually say in your book not paranormal but normal not supernatural but actually natural just part of the phenomena in our in the world in you know in in mind and body and in in spirit and matter, it just becomes an interplay of these things. And it's not, it's not dangerous. It's just something that's there. You know, and there was a time, of course, in a pre-scientific age or a less scientific age when things that we take for granted now and we've got a kind of some understanding of that they would have been seen as, as myths and magic and, and, and just impos- mm. impossible because of the limited worldview at the time. We just have a different limited worldview now. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem with a lot of scientists and a lot of people who, you know, who are interested in science amongst the general population is that they've kind of, you know, they've thrown the baby out of the bathwater. You know, science has played a, a very important role in um, transcending superstitions and providing, with, providing us with knowledge about, you know, causal mechanisms. You know, people used to believe that illnesses were caused by evil spirits, but now we know that a lot of illnesses are created by 
simple sort of um, they have biological causes. So science has played a lot of you know it's had an important role in that sense. But it doesn't mean that you have to throw out everything which is seemingly you know which is difficult to explain. Everything which is anomalous doesn't need to be ejected in the name of science. And you know, and the problem is that um, you know you, you mentioned quantum physics earlier, and and you, you quite rightly said that a lot of quantum physicists do not contemplate the consequences of um, of um, the findings of quantum physics. They they almost ignore them because they they are aware that they would contravene the materialist worldview. So a lot of quantum physics just say you know ignore the consequences, just do the maths and forget about the uh, the philosophy. Um, but it, but you have to take account of the philosophy. You know, funda- quantum physics tells us about the fundamental reality of the universe, and it tells us about the the most essential level of reality from which all other levels emerge. It is telling us the basic, telling us about the nature of the world. And at that level, a lot of uh, paranormal phenomena are, are by no means anomalous. You know, they are. You know, in fact, a lot of early quantum physicists were very open to. Uh, the possibility of psi phenomena, um, certainly telepathy and precognition. And in, in those terms, in terms of quantum physics, there's no reason why telepathy should not exist. Uh, that's it's related to the phenomenon of entanglement in quantum terms. There's no reason why precognition should not exist because time does not flow in a linear way at the quantum level. And there's a phenomenon called retrocausation where, um, events can take place before the, before their cause. And, you know, what one quantum theory, it's called the transactional theory, is that quantum waves are the result of, sorry, quantum events are the result of waves from the past and from the future interacting in the present. And, you know, there, there, there's all kinds of possibilities which, uh, which are open in terms of the quantum uh, view of the world. So there's no reason why psi phenomena should be considered outside the realms of science. A lot of, um, popular scientists say that psi phenomena break the, the, rules of science or contravene the laws of physics that's complete nonsense it's not not true at all they may contravene the simple laws of newtonian physics but you know they're completely consistent uh with with quantum physics we could say that all laws are man-made or human-made as it were and you can design a system come up with you can make any law you want you could look for example you can say that steve taylor can fly you can just say, oh, that's just the way it is. It's the law of Steve Taylor flying. And you then go and jump out of your um, office window and see how far you get. You can't just state that things... Co- I mean, having that saying it contravenes the laws of physics, perhaps that suggests that we should expand that view. When you have, as there exists now, so many different and diverging explanations for things, and they just seem to be popping up everywhere, that sometimes can suggest that your fundamental assumptions, your fundamental tenets are incorrect and you need to go back to the drawing board. I think that's definitely where we are now. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that applies to consciousness. You know, there are so many different theories of how the brain could produce consciousness, about which neural networks may be involved or which parts of the brain may be involved. But there's no coherent picture. You know, there's so many con- contrasting viewpoints that it seems fairly safe to, to take the view that, you know, the fundamental assumption there is wrong. And it's, it's very, that's also very clear with near death experiences. You know, there's such a, you know, when I wrote my book, I looked into all of the different uh, explanations that have been put forward of near-death experiences. And I was just amazed at the, the variety, the sheer variety. I must have, you know, um, I must have sort of come up upon 15 or 20 different 
neurological or physiological explanation of near-death experiences. And some of them actually contrast, uh, actually uh, conflict with each other, contravene each other. But, you know, and there's no, there's really no evidence for any of them. They're all very, you know, very conjectural, um, very speculative. So I think when that's the case, and when there's actually evidence for another um, kind of perspective, i.e. the perspective that near-death experiences um, suggest that consciousness is not produced by directly by the brain, I think, you know, when there's so much confusion and lack of consistency and such a variety of different perspectives, you, yeah, you have to reject the assumption, the fundamental assumption there. It's a good sign that the fundamental assumption that the brain produces consciousness is wrong. Now, some of the most valuable material in your book, I think, is where you talk about mental and physical health, because effectively, whether it's from uh, the placebo effect or neuroplasticity, there's evidence that uh, the mind can affect the body, mind and matter can interact, and indeed the brain can be physically changed as well by how you use it or how mind flows through it. Your thoughts basically can affect uh, your brain and body. And of course, there's tremendous resistance to this despite the evidence. And we could once again say that, particularly the placebo effect, that this is accepted by mm. uh, scientists, medical professionals, but it's not integrated. But I think there's some really optimistic bits in your book where you're talking about, particularly at a time like this, when life has become so meaningless for so many people, you get one in 10 Americans and antidepressants, we could do with a way to change our thinking, our patterns of thought, and our physical health would improve as well. You know, we see mm. uh, life expectancy starting to decline now in some uh, big industrial nations, with the US being one of them. Uh, so, and particularly with you as a psychologist, I think you can see a, a tremendous potential in this to benefit our physical and mental well-being if if these yeah. ideas if these ideas can be integrated a bit more into our society. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you know the the basic assumption that we are just genetic machines and there's really no purpose to our lives. I think it is at the root of um, you know sort of the the collective depression. Um, which many people seem to share. And, uh, you know, in, in America, there's a big problem at the moment with uh, opioid addiction. And obviously a lot of that is due to factors like the o- massive op- overprescription of these drugs, which have caused addiction. And a lot of it's due to duplicitous and corrupt pharmaceutical companies. But I think at a more fundamental level, um, it's caused by a sense of nihilism, a sense of disorientation and a lack of purpose. And And, you know, ultimately that comes from um, the materialist worldview and I think if we did you know I think one of the aims of my book is to try to try to instate a different metaphysical paradigm a different worldview in our culture you know every culture has to have a worldview and every culture creates one and you know because we have this materialist worldview underlying our culture it has has had these you know very disastrous psychological effects. So we need a, a different worldview. And I think if we did have a, a more spiritual worldview, uh, you know, pan-spiritist worldview, for example, which sees um, not, not matter as essential reality, but consciousness or spirit as essential reality, then it would have a massive effect on our lives. It would change the way that we look at um, human life, the way we see our own, um, our own purpose. It would give us a sense of meaning would also make us more altruistic. I mean, I think there's a problem in our society with competition that, you know, this, this kind of ethos, um, partly because we believe that life is fundamentally purposeless and purposeless, 
and therefore we want to just get as much as we can from the world while we're here. And obviously, if we are just genetic machines, then we're competing for resources with other genetic machines, and we're able to, you know, we're kind of justified in pushing them out of the way and trying to grab as much as we can. Um, that ethos of competition is very destructive as well. But, you know, if you accept the spiritual view that um, the human beings are interlinked, we are part of a network of consciousness, we share the same fundamental essence, and we're able to sense each other's pain and suffering because we're interconnected, then it establishes a, a sound basis for altruism. It makes altruism natural, which it is. Altruism is one of the most natural aspects of human nature. And it encourages altruism as well. It, it makes us, you know, you know, it, it creates um, a worldview where we see the purpose of life as not to take, but to give. It creates a sense of a desire to contribute rather than a desire to accumulate. And altruism is, you know, psychologically very, very healthy. You know, it, it creates a sense of connection. It creates a, a sense of um, intense well-being. So, yeah, you're right. If we did have a, a different worldview, if there was a kind of different paradigm underlying our culture, then I'm sure it would have massively positive effects. Well, if you allow that religious ideas or pseudo-religious ideas like uh, karma, for example, uh, do unto others, you know, what goes around, comes around, etc. Those things, those uh, sentiments, they, they, they're as old as we can tell and they live on for a reason. And even though people will say, I don't actually believe in karma. If you do something bad to somebody else, you steal, you lie, you cheat, whatever. You, know, you may get punished, you may get away with it, you know, but they don't actually think there's any sort of any larger consequences um, in life, but that seems to be a law that, if not unbreakable, it does seem to apply a great deal. Even you can even uh, point out that what quantum physics is telling us about interconnection is that there might actually be some basis in this, maybe for methods that we don't currently understand mm. that we do mm. harm ourselves when we harm others, and, and that there is actually something at work there. Someday it may be actually. We do actually now have a scientific principle that explains how this could happen, but whether we ever find that or not, there seems to be something. Mm. Go- there seems to be something going on. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, in a sense we are actually each other. You know, we share the same being. We are manifestations of the same consciousness, and that makes us that makes us able to sense each other's pain and suffering. You know, if you, if I experience a person or witness a person's suffering, a person who is in pain, I. F- feel that because in a sense i am them and my desire to alleviate that pain is very similar to the desire to alleviate my own pain because we are each other and so if you hurt other people in a spiritual sense you do also hurt yourself and that's why you know um you know people who act with brutality and cruelty as long as they're not psychopaths i think psychopaths are a different category altogether because they are unable to feel empathy or emotional connection. But, you know, the, people do suffer pangs of conscience because they are hurting themselves. They feel guilt because they are hurting themselves. And, yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, I think, um, you know, th- there is a, a sense of tremendous interconnection between human beings, and altruism is, altruism is just a manifestation of that. I think that's one of the reasons why, or connected to one of the reasons why deathbed epiphanies and revelations are, are so common that, that if some people who have lived their lives in a particular way, not necessarily being being bad people, but just with this overly materialist view of life, that it all has no meaning. That they find, if they if they have time to contemplate their own death, 
uh, if they're actually faced with it, you know, and they don't die suddenly, if it's something that you are going mm. to, you're going to die soon, their whole world could be tipped upside down and they can change. They can suddenly say, oh, they, they have a sudden understanding to, I, what I did, I should have done something else. This isn't what I wanted. I didn't want more things and stuff. I wanted time with my family and friends, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an, another area of my research has been, um, uh, investigating the effects of encounters with death. They, they, they often do have a very, transformational effect they often bring about a transformation afterwards you know long-lasting transformation in terms of the way that people live their lives people often shift away from materialism towards altruism and they often become more creative and they often become interested in spirituality and self-development so there's a, a big shift in terms of priority and it is almost as if people wake up you know it, it often takes an encounter with death to wake people up now, we do spend, many of us do spend our lives asleep, you know, asleep in this um, kind of self-centered, restricted mode where we're really only interested in, in uh, accumulating and uh, furthering our own ambitions. And, you know, we, we live like blinkered horses, just uh, just looking straight in front of us and ignoring the, the whole picture. But when we face death, we, you know, we do wake up. And we do shift into this mode of connection and, you know, this mode where, you know, we begin to reject or just transcend egotism and materialism. And yeah, there, there is a, a, a realization of the interconnectivity. And I guess you could say it's, you know, in a sense, it's waking up from materialism, but, but materialism both in the sense of consumerism and also uh, materialism in a, in a philo- philosophical sense. Well, of course, what worries a lot of people uh, when they hear, how, how can I put it, talk like this, is that God is going to get in by the back door again, and that <laughs> this is creationism uh, with, you know, rebranded, and you see mm. how people react to the term intelligent design, even though there appears to be intelligence and design everywhere in nature. These are all more sort of banners that people are very, very wary of. Um, yeah. So, yeah. and that, that, it is an issue really because a lot of people look at the mayhem wreaked by religious fundamentalism and they see that that, you know, you're, you're somehow, we're somehow going to be admitting that these people had a point all along. Yeah. I mean, there, there is a, there's a simplest, a simplistic dichotomy which a lot of people have. Um, um, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine a, a few years ago and I was telling him about the evidence for, about, uh, the evidence for near death experiences. And I was telling telling him that on balance, because of the evidence I've looked at, um, you know, I, I do believe in some kind of life after death. And my friend was amazed because he was kind of like an atheist, a, a rationalist. And he said to me, you know, how can you believe in a life after death without being religious? I know, and there's, there's a simplistic dichotomy that if you believe in life after death, if you believe in psi phenomena, then you're, you know, you're irrational, you're a fundamentalist religious person, or you're a kind of crazy new age person. There's a simplistic dichotomy between rationality and irrationality. And rationality, it means, according to these people, it means materialism, basically. Uh, and a lot of people think the only alternative to materialism is religion. There's a simplistic assumption that maybe a religion or, or sort of new age craziness. But obviously that's not true. There's a massive, you know, area between those two extremes or beyond those two extremes. And, you know, that, that's the area where we need to head towards. And, you know, that, that's the area which I think we are moving towards collectively as a society. I think there is a natural movement towards a post-materialist view which transcends both religion and materialism. 
I think another issue is that if you begin to contemplate or consider that there might be a direction in evolution, that there might even be some sort of purpose, even if it's not very well articulated at the moment, if you, if you, if you, mm. just, if you just sense it, but you can't really express it, what starts to come with that as a sense of responsibility uh, towards all life on Earth, you know, other people, towards yourself as well? Actually, you have a lot of control here, and I think that people are not don't like that idea. A lot of people don't want to step up. They want an easy life. If you thought that all of this had some kind of meaning and purpose, that would be an awesome revelation. You know, how could you mm. not how could you not change in the wake of that? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, point. Yeah, I mean I, I personally think that um you know, as, as you say, in order if you reject neo Darwinist uh theories of evolution, you know, it doesn't by any means mean that you have to be a creationist. And in fact, as I said before, there are many modern biologists who do react to neo Darwinism, obviously without being creationist. But, you know, the, the, the alternative view is to, to see that there is some kind of creative impulse in life itself, some kind of impulse to move towards greater complexity and order. And it's just inbuilt within living systems. That there's just a natural tendency to move towards greater complexity. And I, in my view, it emerges from fundamental consciousness itself. It emerges from spirit. Now, once matter emerges from spirit, it moves naturally towards greater complexity. I think there is an inbuilt dynamism, an inbuilt creativity within fundamental consciousness itself. And it just, you know, that even even at the level of matter, there is an instinct, there is an impulse to to move towards greater complexity within physical systems, which these are atoms and molecules, and it also leads eventually to uh, the development of life itself. And once life itself comes into being, then this this movement towards greater complexity expresses itself in evolution. And, you know, there, there are lots of phenomena in evolution. There's a phenomenon called uh, adaptive mutation. And it's a finding that, again, it's a very well-attested phenomenon. You know, millions of, well, maybe not millions, but dozens, hundreds of papers have been written about it. It's this, this sort of strange, creative way that mu- mutations occur. They occur uh, when they are needed. They don't occur randomly. They somehow occur in the right circumstances uh, in order to deal with certain challenges in the environment. And it's, you know, it's, there's a phenomenon, the same phenomenon can be termed non-random mutation. There's a growing realization that evolution just has this natural creativity within it. And, you know, that's, that obviously takes us beyond neo-Darwinism, but it doesn't take us into creationism. It's something different. It's just a kind of a more complex view of evolution. So I think within us as human beings, we have this impulse to, to grow, to move towards greater uh, intensity of a greater intensity of consciousness. I mean, evolution on one level is from the beginnings of life. It has been an expansion and an intensification of consciousness within living systems, within living beings. And that's happening within us. You know, we have this impulse to expand and intensify our consciousness, which often expresses itself within spirituality, within, you know, and it expresses itself in an impulse to, to follow spiritual practices to follow spiritual paths so that we can expand our consciousness. And essentially, that is an evolutionary impulse. Um, so in a sense, we are carrying the process of evolution forward within our own lives. And as we do that, we're helping a whole species to develop collectively. We're sort of furthering the, the collective evolution of the whole human race. And that, that does carry a great deal of responsibility. Yeah, I, I believe that unless we shift collectively towards a different way of experience in the world, a different mode of consciousness, 
which is essentially an evolutionary shift. I believe that unless we do that, we're probably going to survive as a species. So we are, you know, we are responsible for the the whole human race. Um, you know, what we do within our own lives can contribute to potentially contribute towards this evolutionary shift. You speak about the shift coming to fruition. The, the question, you know, how shall we treat others, that eternal question? Well, I think the answer is there are no others, really. We do live in a participatory universe. And the materialist view seems to be, I think we can definitely say it is facilitated a growth phase. You know, it has been a great aid uh, to get us from, you know, one place to the next place. But it's not the it's not the omega point, to use that term. And we do now urgently need to, to like, okay, guys, let's, we need to move on from this. You know, we haven't arrived and I don't think anyone looking out at the world or looking on TV would somehow think that this is the best it can get you know we've, we, we're here now we've arrived and it's just a matter of time before everybody in the world has a, a air conditioning and a fridge and two cars you know this, this we're not a finished product yeah that's true I think I think that's one of the assumptions of materialism that you know we have finally arrived at truth you know after, after many centuries of ignorance and superstition and irrationality and religion and um, you know and uh, simplistic uh, views of reality we've finally arrived at, at reality we know how the world works we have a an understanding of the world this is the truth uh but it's obviously nonsense you know there is a you know we're still obviously in the midst of in a process of discovery and that's why it's such an exciting time at the moment because we are in a phase where materialism is shifting it's moving we're moving beyond it and it's a very exciting time you know there are so many interesting areas um of science, particularly quantum physics, but also you know, there's, there's a phenomenon called quantum biology, which inv- is investigating how the the phenomena of quantum physics, how quantum phenomena affect the macrocosmic world. And um, you know, some biologists believe that that's the the way to explain um, phenomena like um, the migration of birds or photosynthesis, the sense of smell. They believe that quantum processes are involved in the macrocosmic world. And yeah, there's so much interesting research into near-death experiences, into psi phenomena. And I think we're, we're reaching a, a tipping point where materialism is going to collapse in on itself. It's no longer going to be tenable. And then we are going to shift into this new, more holistic, more spiritual view of the world. And there tends to be a delay and a lag with these things, doesn't there? You know, it's like trying to turn around a, an oil tanker. You know, you just can't turn it on a dime. Uh, it takes time. It takes time. Yeah. What I think is happening is that the uh, materialism is still, you know, it's, it still seems powerful, but it's only really a facade. It's like the ha- facade of a house. But inside, the house is actually crumbling away. The floorboards are collapsing. The walls are crumbling. But the facade still looks as though it's intact. But actually, you know, it's, it's very superficial and it's very fragile. And soon, you know, the facade itself will collapse. And then it will be very obvious that materialism has been transcended. Well, I think you could even say that the different stages of grief that are well documented, that maybe hardcore materialists will go through some sort of process like that before there's a kind of acceptance that all the answers aren't in. Um, final point, Steve. Mm-hmm. In, when I first spoke to you back in 2012, uh, when you had your book Back to Sanity was released, I asked you, uh, rather boldly what you thought the meaning of life was and you said basically again I'm, I'm paraphrasing you but you said you thought it was too big a question to ever really grapple with and I was hmm. in- interesting reading from your latest book I'll just give you a quick quote uh, as evolution progresses there is an increasing spiritualization of matter living beings become a fuller expression of spirit and move closer to the source from which they and all things came 
And I thought to myself, well, do you know, that's a suggestion of like a purpose or meaning. And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth or anything like that, but. Oh, yeah. It, it feels, mm-hmm. it, it feels right. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm actually surprised that I said back in 2012 that I thought it was too big a question. Because, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think that is the purpose of life. The purpose of life is self-evolution. And in a sense, it's not really self-evolution. It's collective evolution, which we contribute to. And the meaning of life unfolds through that process. You know, that, I mean, on one level, you could say that the meaning of life is just to just to be alive and experience the wonder of life and the the wonder of being. But on another level, meaning is derived from the process of contributing to this evolutionary process. And, you know, I mean, on one level, that is the purpose of our lives. The purpose of our lives is to facilitate a shift, a collective shift in human consciousness. And that comes from, you know, directly from bringing about a shift in our own consciousness. And I think, you know, when you do align yourself with this, with the evolutionary process, when you do get involved in self-development or spirituality, there is this kind of sense that, yeah, this this feels right. It feels somehow natural. It feels so. It feels it feels as if you're sort of you're flowing with something much bigger than yourself. That's why it feels so right. And that is the case. You know, we are flowing with the evolutionary process. And I think the purpose of our lives is to allow that process to express itself in our own lives. Steve, today we've been talking about your new book, Spiritual Science, Why Science Needs Spirituality to Make Sense of the World. That's widely available. Uh, do you want to share with folks uh, details of your website, perhaps, or just anything else you'd like to put out there? Yeah, um, my website is www.stephenmtaylor.com. That's Stephen with a V, M for Mark. And uh, yeah, you can find lots of my essays on there, information about my books, and some of my poetry. I write poetry too, so some of my poems are there. And I do, I do regularly. I do talks and workshops regularly, so you can find information about my latest talks, talks and workshops. Splendid. Well, once again, Steve, thank you so much for joining us again on LegalizeFreedom.com. You're welcome, Grace. It's uh, great to talk to you again. <laughs>